ask that you be with us. I ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds and open our spirits, mighty God, that we may in all things bring you glory. Teach us your word. Teach us your word, mighty God, that we may indeed obey it and glorify you and exalt you with a life that is holy unto you, Father. In the name of Jesus, I ask you to be with us, Lord. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles. Open your Bibles to the uh, ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to be dealing primarily with the Gospel that was read this morning, which is verses 38, basically through 48. I think it's a very important passage, and I would love for everyone to be in the Word and to be looking at the Word and what it is that God wants to show us and teach us today. First of all, this event that we are looking at today, this passage of Scripture from the Gospel of Mark, it's a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And primarily, perhaps, maybe with John. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark where we have John alone coming to speak to Jesus. Now, this is not John the Baptist. This is John the disciple. The Baptist is probably dead uh, by now, beheaded by Herod. And this event takes place, this conversation takes place right after the transfiguration, right after Jesus has taken this same John and Peter and Andrew up a mountain, and there in that mountain, Jesus is transfigured meaning that his figure changed, his glory shone forth, and he met with Elijah and with Moses. And Peter, at that tremendous vision, Peter just wants to stay up there. So Peter suggests that Jesus would allow him to build three booths, three little shacks, where they can take shelter and stay comfortably. One for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. They don't even say they want one for themselves. Okay? They just want to maintain the glory. They want to maintain that moment. which in a way tells me that we, we, we might have wanted the same. 
And the other thing that it tells me is that sometimes we come to church and everything works and the music is fantastic and the prayers are amazing and we feel the presence of God in a fantastic way and perhaps some of us would say, we want this always. This is the way we want it. Let's stay here. Let's keep singing. Let's not go to work. Let's stay here. And the reality is that we come to church to be equipped by the Word of God so that we can go down the valley and we can go out of this church to worship the Lord, to minister to the Lord, and to minister to people in need that we're going to encounter. Peter and John and Andrew just want to stay in the glory. When Jesus was revealing himself to them so that they would come down from the mountain to do ministry. Now, this is chapter 9. Chapter 6, several chapters behind, Jesus had commissioned the disciples to go and preach the gospel and cast out demons, and heal the sick. And it actually tells us in chapter 6, beginning with verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. So they went out, verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So you might say they were very successful. Jesus empowered them. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to them. Jesus gave his power to them. They went and they did it. And many people were set free, and the gospel was proclaimed, and the name of Jesus was exalted, and God was glorified, and people were healed, and demons were cast out, and things were magnificent, the way they should always be. But like I preached to you a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus comes down the mountain the first thing he encounters is a big obstacle. Because a father had brought his son who was demon-possessed, and this demon made him deaf and made him mute or dumb, as, as the Bible says, but not only that, he would throw this child into the fire, into the river, he would cause havoc in this young boy to the point that the father knew there was something wrong. It wasn't just a disease, but a demon possession that wanted to destroy the child. And the father takes his son, as any of us would do, and he brings him to Jesus, except that Jesus is up the mountain. So when Jesus comes down, the first thing he encounters is that there's a large crowd around the other nine disciples that had stayed down in the mountain and down below the mountain. 
And these disciples who previously have been empowered and who previously have been successful are unable to cast a demon out of that young boy. They tried, they tried, they tried, they tried everything Jesus had taught them. And they were not able. Jesus calls the little boy over or tells the father to bring the child and he casts out the demons and he, and he says that the demon just convulsed the child and, and began to get a grip, a, a grip on that child but eventually he had to leave the child. And the young boy was set free. And when the disciples questioned the, uh, Jesus, why couldn't we do it when we did it before? Jesus says, First of all, he says, because of your lack of faith, in a way, you need to look at that, because Jesus says, oh, you faithless generation, how long do I have to be with you? But then at the end, he says, because that kind, that kind of demonic possession only lives with prayer. So there must have been a prayer issue as well as a faith issue of why this demon was not cast out of this young boy. However, they've left the area, and now they have come to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. And in their journey from the mountain, the skirt of the mountain, the, where they had met this demoniac, in Capernaum, Jesus notices that his disciples are arguing with each other. He doesn't say anything. He waits until they get to the, to the city of Capernaum, and there they enter the house, and Jesus says to them, What were you discussing, arguing on the way? None of them wants to say anything. Because they had been arguing about who of them, or which of them, would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, maybe Peter and John and Andrew have already communicated to the other nine when they saw up in the mountain, what they saw up in the mountain. Maybe it's what the power that they saw in Jesus in casting out the demon. But they all want to be the greatest in that. They want to be near Jesus. They want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They want the power that is in Jesus. And they're arguing about which of them is going to be the greatest one in that realm of the power of Jesus and in the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus says to them in Mark chapter 9 verse 35. And I think it's an important verse. Jesus says... If anyone desires to be first, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be the last and the servant of all. Hear those words. If anyone wants to be the first in the kingdom, if anyone wants to be the first next to Jesus, if anyone wants what Jesus has, he has to learn first, she has to learn first to be the last and the servant 
of all. And then he says, or then it says, then he took a little child, the least, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Here Jesus is introducing the idea that faith is not just about what you have in your head. We all can accumulate doctrine. We all can accumulate knowledge. We all can say with our lips that we believe in Jesus. We all can have faith in our hearts until our hearts overflow. But Jesus is saying that faith must be active. Faith must be visible. Faith, to be faith, has to be a verb and not just a noun. In fact, in Greek, faith, the same word faith is used as a noun for the faith that we keep, as a verb in the sense of, I am faithing, okay? But when we transfer that into English, we say, I believe. The problem with I believe is that the message is that we have this knowledge in our heads when faith is supposed to be action. You act according to what you believe. You act in a manner consistent with the things you claim you are loyal to that you believe in your heart and the person that you believe in. Your actions speak louder than your words. Your actions for Christ speak louder than any confession of who Christ is. So here in this verse, Jesus says that whoever receives, that's action, whoever receives one of these little ones in my name, in my name, receives me, and not only receives me, but receives my Father who sent me. These words of Jesus may have jarred the memory of John. Because John in the twelve had encountered a man that was an exorcist that was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but he was not one of the twelve. And John in the twelve told him to stop. Stop because you are not one of us. Now the man was doing what Jesus was commanding to do. The man was effective in doing the ministry of Jesus. But just because he was not one of the twelve, they tell the man to stop. Now John may be saying to himself, I wonder if we did right. I mean Jesus is saying that the greatest is going to be the least. 
that is the one that uses the name of Jesus and does the work, that's the one. And here we told this guy who was being so effective in the name of Jesus to stop just because he's not one of us. And maybe John is kind of saying in his mind, ah, did we did right? Did we mess up? And so John comes to Jesus with the problem, Lord, this guy was doing what you told us to do. We were ineffective at the mountain. This guy is constantly effective in your name, and yet we told him to stop. Now, what's going on? Is it jealousy? Is John jealous at the way this man, who's not one of the twelve, is he jealous that he's being effective and they're not being effective? Or is it love? Does he love Jesus so much that he wants to protect the way the name of Jesus is used and the power of Jesus in this man who clearly is not one of them? Is he trying to be protective of Jesus? Or is it that John and the other disciples still don't quite get that it's not about the person, it's about the kingdom? Does he still perhaps not understand that whosoever is spreading the kingdom of God, casting out demons, doing what is right, is part of the kingdom work, whether he's one of us or is not one of us? Does he not get it yet? Perhaps. Could be any, any of these three. It could be all of these three. Now, I want to tell you about another event. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and Paul is being healing people, casting out demons in Ephesus in the name of Jesus. And there are certain Jewish exorcists that are always looking for the next trick, or looking for the next talisman, or looking for the next word that would make power show up. And since they're hearing Paul mention the name of Jesus, they decide that if they use the name of Jesus, power will come. Let me read it to you, so that you understand what I'm talking about. Chapter 19 of Acts, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil, evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know. And forgive me, but this is an addiction to the Bible. But who the hell are you? That's basically what they're saying. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And it says that the man in whom the evil spirit was, was leaped on them, overpowered them, 
and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded and this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord was magnified. That kind of tells me that the name of Jesus is no lucky charm. The name of Jesus is not a talisman that anyone can just call upon it and use it like if it was a word, just a word. The name of Jesus does convey power. The name of Jesus does convey the authority that Jesus gives to his disciples to do the kingdom work that needs to be done. But it's not to be used lightly or used like a lucky charm of some sort that we just call on the name of Jesus and things happen. However, this exorcist that John forbid it from using the name of Jesus, clearly he's a man that believed in the Lord. Clearly this is a man of faith. This is a man that probably has seen Jesus heal and has seen Jesus cast out demons and he put his faith in the Lord and he was doing the stuff that Jesus was doing. Clearly. Because even Jesus makes the acknowledgement that this man could not ever be against him and whoever is for him can never be against him. He basically says to John, leave him alone. He's doing what I want done. He may not be one of us, but he is doing the stuff that I came to do in this kingdom. To set the captive free, to preach the gospel, to heal the sick. That's what I came for and let him do it because he's doing it the right way. Jesus kind of comes to this man's uh, defense. And then Jesus gives two examples of people who are doing the right thing in his name and people who are doing the wrong things. The first example he gives is in verse 41, and he says, Whoever gives you a cup of water, or a cup of water to drink in my name, because you bear the name of Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Whoever does the right thing because of my name's sake in them and in the person receiving the water will not lose the blessing that will come. Whoever is obedient in these things will receive the blessing. The least of things that you do in the name of Jesus to give someone a cup of water... The least of things you can do for someone in need to visit them when they're sick. To help someone in need. The least of things you do in the name of Jesus, the reward that that will imply will be yours and no one can take it away. That's a positive thing that Jesus says about being obedient and righteous. Then on the negative side, Jesus says in verse 42, the very next verse, whoever causes 
one of these little ones. Remember, he has a child with him. And Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now a millstone is a huge stone that probably weighs several tons. It's not something a man can carry by himself. It's usually put on top of another stone, another large stone, and it serves to crush the wheat. You would put the wheat grains and it would just crush it into powder. These are huge, heavy stones. Jesus says that whoever causes sin on a little child, imagine on an adult, whoever brings sin into the world, it would be better for that person if one of those huge stones would be hung around his or her neck and thrown into the ocean to drown than if to fall in the hands of an angry God. It would be better for that person for whom sin comes to pay that kind of penalty than receive the judgment of the living God. So Jesus says that those who do right, whether they're part of the twelve or not part of the twelve, whoever gives someone a cup of water, whether they're part of a church or not part of the church, as long as they're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ and for the glory of God, that person's reward will not be removed from them. But whoever, including a Christian, who is a wolf in sheep clothes, causes anyone to sin, I feel sorry for that individual. So Jesus gives us a positive and a negative. One who works for him in his name, and one who works against him for doing what is not of God. Now because this whole passage is talking about sin, and the next verses are very strongly speaking about sin, I decided to look up in our catechism, in the Acna Catechism, what does it say about sin? So I looked up the question in the new Acna Catechism where it says, what is sin? This is what it says. A sin is any desire or disobedient act that arises out of the fallen condition of my human nature and falls short either by commission or omission of perfect conformity to God's revealed will. Any desire or any disobedient act that arises out of our fallen human condition and falls short either in commission or omission of the perfect will of God. That is what a sin is. Let me put it a little easier. A sin is anything that we do that is in opposition to the holiness of God. Anything that we do 
that is contrary to the holiness and the righteousness of our Lord and our God. Anything we do, anything we think, anything that is by commission or by omission, that we, by the way, commission means that we do it, and omission means that we should have done it and didn't do it. Either way, it is a sin against God. That is sin. Ultimately, all sins, all sins are a rebellion against God. All those things we do or don't do that do not conform to the holiness of God is really a rebellion in our parts toward God. We're saying to God, I know you said no, but I am saying yes. I know this does not represent you, but I want to do it anyways. Sin is a rebellion against the stated will of God. We know what sin is, we just like it. We know when we're hurting somebody, we know when we're doing things that are not holy, and yet we do it because our human nature says, yes, yes, give it to me, I want it, now, it fits me, whether God likes it or don't like it. All sin is ultimately a rebellious attitude against the holiness of God. Where we put ourselves ahead of Him, where we obey what we want, not what He says. All sin is ultimately a rebellious attitude against the Lord our God. The Bible describes sin by using a word that means missing the mark. Imagine that there is a big, huge uh, um, target here, and you're given an arrow to shoot it at the target, and you shoot, and, and, and the arrow goes every which way except what God has asked you to do. You shoot yourself on the foot, you shoot the ceiling, you hit the wall, you don't hit the mark, either on purpose or by mistake, sin is whenever we miss the mark that God has set. Sin is whenever God tells us, hit right here, do it this way, and we choose to do it some other way. Missing the mark. That is what sin is according to Scripture. In fact, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The salary of sin, what we receive and we earn by what we've done, is death. The wages of sin is death. Sin is destructive. You know, sometimes we have an attitude that we know what's not right but we still choose to play, play with it. 
You know, we use sin as time, at times, like children play with dough or with Play-Doh, um, you know. We think we can make little things out of things, and then we put it all together again. Sometimes we do sin like if sin was our friend. Sin is not our friend. Sin is destructive. Sin destroys your human nature. Sin destroys the image of God in you. Sin destroys you as a human being. Because sin, you don't get caught, so you try it again. And then you try it again. And before you know it, sin becomes a habit in you. And maybe you don't sin in some things, but you sin in others. But sin is destructive to our relationship with God. Sin is destructive to our own humanity. Sin changes us as human beings. Sin destroys a lot in us, in mind, in heart, in spirit. Sin destroys families. Sin destroys all relationships. It destroys relationship between believers. Sin destroys relationships among friends. Sin destroys covenantal relationships like marriage and other things. Sin is destructive. And sin ultimately destroys societies. Every large, great empire that have ever existed has been destroyed by sin from within. Whether it's the Assyrian Empire, whether it's the, uh, the, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, it wasn't so much the barbarians coming against Rome, it was that Rome no longer had a value for which to fight. And Rome ceased Believing in who they were. And the barbarians then destroyed them. It was the sin of the Roman empires and the Roman people that destroyed the empire of Rome. And I wonder, the way the world is going today, what empire will fall in history today? I pray that we are not destroying society as we know it here in the United States. But we are living in a society right now where everybody wants to do what they will. And we need to make sure that we look at that. But sin is destructive. Sin never builds. Sin destroys and causes things to fall apart from what is righteous and good. In fact, the seriousness of sin is so great. The seriousness of sin is so great that Jesus says in verse 43 of the passage we're dealing with today, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands. And to go to hell 
into the fire that shall never be quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hell fire. Now, Jesus doesn't use this analogy that is so strong if he didn't mean how serious the issue of sin is in a human being. To the point, and notice this, Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about it, cut one ear, you have two. He doesn't say, oh, just cut one kidney, you have another one. Jesus uses things that are so important to our daily life, like a foot, a hand, or an eye. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better to have one eye than to end up in hell forever. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it out. It is better to have one less member than to go into hell for all eternity. Now Jesus is using tremendously powerful words. The image, imagine the image that Jesus is using to tell us how destructive sin can be in a human being. So I ask myself, okay, Lord, I get it. So what is the remedy to sin? What is the remedy to sin in our lives? The first thing that I want to say to you is that the Father gave us the answer to the problem of sin in His Son, Jesus Christ. The Father gave us the answer to the problem of sin and judgment that comes with sin in giving us His only Son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in Him would never die for eternity. It is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that we have the total and complete forgiveness of our sins because Jesus paid for every single one of our sins on that cross on Calvary. Jesus is God's answer to our problem of sin and judgment. Whosoever comes to Jesus, their sins are forgiven because Jesus paid for them. Whosoever doesn't come to Jesus, their sins remain in them, and they will be judged at the appropriate time, and I feel sorry for them. Jesus is the answer of God to the problem of sin. But I don't want you to have this idea, oh, I just come to the cross, I can keep sinning, and I just come to the cross and everything is forgiven. I think there's things that we need to do about sin, which is ours to do. Listen, you don't go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that you have a little cancer, and you decide, 
I'm just going to leave it there and wait until it grows. And then when it grows, I'll take it out. And that's how it works with sin as well. The first thing we have to do about sin is we need to recognize the sin in our lives. We need to identify it. We need to call sin, sin. We need to look at our, our, our own lives. You see, I don't know your sins. In fact, even your family member next to you doesn't know your sin. But God and you know it. You need to identify the sin that separates you from God and separates you from yourself. You need to identify it. And when you discover what your sin is, and let me tell you, there are sins in us that maybe we do by mistake and, and we fall into sin and we bring it to the Lord and we never repeat it again. But there are sins in our lives that we keep falling into. We can't seem to stop it. We confess it. We come to the Lord, we ask for forgiveness, and we leave, and it just, there are sins in us that have become habitual. Because Satan knows where our weakness is, and he will never attack us where we're strong, he'll attack us where we're weak. And we keep falling over the same thing over and over and over again. Either it's gossip, or it's sexual, or it's some form of addiction, or something. But sin is something that there are sins that are recurrent in our lives. We need to identify it, recognize it, and then we need to repent of those sins. We need to repent before God of those sins. We need to acknowledge them before God and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. This is not right. This goes against who you are. This is a rebellion against you. And I don't want this in my life. We need to repent of our sins. And we need to confess them. We need to confess them to God and ask for forgiveness and ask for help. And sometimes we need to confess it to a priest. Sometimes we need to go to a priest and do actual confession for the sake of receiving counsel, for the sake of being held accountable, for the sake of someone who gives us absolution and is willing to work with us on that issue. We need to confess our sins, not hide them. So we need to identify it, we need to repent of it, we need to confess it, and then we need to cut it out of our lives. We need to have somebody we trust that can help us with that particular sin, and we need to have somebody walk it with us, and we need to cut it out of our lives. We can't play with sin. We can't put it in our back pockets. We cannot hide it somewhere in a closet, and we go pick it up when we're alone at home. We have to cut it off. It is of the evil one, and it is not of the Lord. Sin is destructive. So destructive that Jesus says that we need to cut any member that we need to cut. 
in order to ensure that we're not offending God to the point of ending up in hell. Sin is a serious business for Jesus Christ to the point that he came to die on a cross for the sins of the world. We can't pick up our sins once the Lord has forgiven them. We can't play with them. Just because somebody doesn't know that I'm committing a sin, we continue to do it until we get caught. Sometimes when we get caught, like the people recently that were caught with the Ashley Madison business thing, with that site, and pastors were caught, and police officers were caught, and government people in Washington were caught, and one son of a pastor committed suicide over being caught. Why not cut it off before somebody catches us? Cut it off. It is not of God, and it should not be of us. Now, if you or I have a problem with a particular sin, we can't seem to stop. That's where we need each other. And we need help. And we need to find appropriate help. And we need to find understanding pastors that are willing to walk it with us. But we don't hide it because it will destroy us. Over time, it will destroy us. It will destroy and has destroyed ministries. And it has destroyed marriages. And he has destroyed lives. That's how serious this thing is that Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cut your hand off. Cut your foot off. You want to do the work of the kingdom, cut off sin from your lives. I pray that you don't just throw this sermon away with, it's not about me. It's about all of us. Because that's the nature of our humanity. We need Jesus and we need each other. To live the life that Christ wants us to live. Amen? Amen. I pray you hear it.